0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Welcome back, everybody. Now, over the last handful of weeks, I've had the pleasure of managing an ambitious new project in my role with Climate Farmers, an organization working to build the infrastructure to scale regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now, we call it the Pioneer Programme. What this is essentially is a collaborative effort between us and some of the most prominent and experienced educators in regenerative agriculture. In this first program, we partnered with Richard Perkins of Ridgedale Permaculture in Sweden and his online masterclass to guide farmers from all around Europe to redesign and transition their farms and businesses towards regenerative models. Through the incredible education provided in Richard's course and guided facilitation from our team and other knowledgeable practitioners around the world, We've helped our group to develop their holistic context, analyze new enterprise options, and map a course for regenerative futures for their land. In just a short time, we've seen dramatic transformations and progress in both the farm ecology and the mindset of our program participants. During this journey, I had the pleasure of interviewing Will Harris of White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia, and guiding a Q&A session with our Pioneer Farmers. Now, since Will does a great job of giving his own introduction early in the interview, I'll cut this preface short and jump right in. But don't forget to stick around till the end where I'll tell you how you can join the next Pioneer program with climate farmers. And now I'll hand things over to Will Harris. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to be here.
1: Uh, Welcome to Bluffton.
0: (laughs) Great to finally meet you. I've admired your work for a while. Well, thank you very much.
1: I've been, I've been doing it for a while.
0: You have been doing it for a while. And that's exactly why we invited you here. We've got some other experienced farmers in our pioneer group here who are helping to lead the way to uh, advance regenerative agriculture around Europe. And your experience and your knowledge is going to be very valuable to us in, in advancing the different enterprises that they have on their farm.
1: Well, I hope, I hope something will be helpful. I'll do the best I can.
0: <laughs> How are things going on the ranch this summer?
1: Things going very, very well. I believe it's probably the best grass growing situation I've ever had. I'm sixty six years old, and except for my time away at college, I've been on this farm all my life. And I've never had as as good a forage this time of year as we do right now.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. What are the main contributing factors, do you think, this year uh, particularly? Uh,
1: three, it would be rain, rain, and rain. We've had a tremendous amount of precipitation this year. It's just really paying off.
0: Yeah, isn't that wild that you guys have had so much rain in that part of the states and everywhere from the Midwest and further west has been in one of the heaviest drought years that we've ever heard of. We've had a few other uh, speakers from that area, and they said they've had a really difficult season this year.
1: And, uh, and some of those guys are dear friends of mine and my heart goes out to. Them. I, I, I've been there. I've, I've had that experience before. which
0: Yeah, we're getting quite a range of experiences this season around Europe as well. I know Germany in particular has gotten hit really hard with flooding recently. And here on the Iberian Peninsula, I'm in Spain. And some of our other farmers are in Portugal and Spain as well. And this has been a pretty dry year, especially during the springtime. So, the name of the game these days seems to be adaptation and resilience more than anything.
1: We're we just starting a nonprofit a 501c3 called uh, uh, Center for Agricultural Resilience. And uh, that's a really big, uh, going forward, that education in that field is a really big part of what we're going to be doing.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. It's never been more important than now. Well, look, we've got the majority of our group here now. Uh, So Will, would you start us off by giving us a little bit of a background of your work and what it is that you have focused on doing for for your career?
1: I'd be happy to. Uh, So White Oak Pastures is our family farm in the coastal plain of Georgia. I'm about 80 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, about 300 feet elevation. Uh, The land here is an ancient uh, uh, seabed, so it's uh, fairly sandy as opposed to most of the country. My great-grandfather came to this farm in 1866. He farmed the land. My grandfather followed him. My father followed him. I followed my father. I have two daughters and two in-laws are helping me manage the farm now. So uh, my post-World War II in this country, I suppose all over the world, agriculture made sweeping changes. Uh, I I, I call it the industrialization, centralization, commoditization. And my father uh, was was managing the farm during that era and he changed the farm in those ways I graduated from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture in 1976. Uh, came home, major in animal science, came home and further industrialized the farm. <clears throat> under, under my watch, it was a monoculture of only cattle. I have a cattle feedlot where I fed them a green ration, total mixed ration uh, a lot of cultivation, a lot of pesticides, a lot of antibiotics, a lot of hormone implants, dot, 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 confinement feeding. Uh, uh, I managed the farm that way for 20 years. In the mid 90s, I started to uh, uh, fall out of love with that management system. I tra- started transitioning the farm, though it would have been 25 years ago. And today we pasture raise five red meat species cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits and we hand butcher them on a red meat slaughter plant, USDA inspected that I built here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, ducks, hand butcher them in a separate USDA inspected facility here on the farm. We raise sort of out organic vegetables, uh, pastured eggs, honey, and a number of other ancillary uh, businesses that make the organism that is white in pastures.
0: Incredible. And especially for the amount of diversity of life that you have on the farm, I feel like that's as much of a, a point to talk about as anything else. I'm wondering, first, uh, how defining your holistic context early on, and then using the management framework has guided your farm's development since the early years. I know you were an early adopter of that system.
1: You know, uh, yes, yes. And uh, before I took holistic training, my my holistic context was really more what I wanted the farm to not be than what I wanted it to be. Uh, When I was managing the farm industrially, the land was a dead mineral medium. Uh, half a percent organic matter. Uh, the uh, the animals were in confinement, uh, not not and, and while the farm was, was the farm was financially successful, we made money every year. My motivation to change was not an economic one. It was a what I personally did not like anymore. But I decided what I didn't want to do, and then I took steps. I quit doing the things that was causing what I didn't like. Later on, I refined that a bit and uh, defined more of the holistic context of what I wanted the farm to be and started working very proactively to make it that way.
0: And so with this complex integration of the various animal breeds that you have, can you talk about some of both the advantages and the challenges of having so much complexity on your pastures?
1: The advantages outweigh the disadvantages dramatically. Uh, I should say that the, the primary disadvantage is that uh, uh, we, the, the farm is actually a larger entity than I intended for it to be. Uh, we have 180 something employees and I never intended to operate at that scale. So the, the disadvantage is when I scaled it, when I, when I shaped it the way I wanted it, I, economically, I had to scale it up to a model that was bigger than I originally wanted it to be. Uh, and that's, that's, not, that's not really a very uh, negative thing compared to the benefits that, that it offered. And, uh, and the benefits are many. Uh, I would say that uh, the amount of flexibility that having many different animal impacts uh, is uh, uh, the primary advantage. You know, I you know, I I, I so I call what I do prescriptive grazing, and everybody's got a, a, a name for it: out know, grazing or rotational grazing. What I call mine prescriptive because today I literally look at a pot of or a parcel and decide what it needs and graze it with that species. You know how the, the impact that uh, hogs have is very different from goats, very different from poultry, very different from cattle, very different from sheep. Uh, to me, the land, uh, as it's uh, successionally moving along, uh, cries out for an impact, and my job is to. Diagnose that and provide that impact. Early on, I thought that I wanted to follow one species with the next, with the next, with the next. And uh, that uh, has advantages, but it's a a labor nightmare. They move at different speeds. You know, there's a, you know, you've all, even in Europe, you heard of the great cattle drives across the American West you never heard of a great chicken drive across the American West or a great hog drive across the American West because the the manner and rate at which the animal move is so different.
0: And so how did you figure out the different rotational necessities for each of those species and which one should follow which? What were the determining factors?
1: I think the first thing the land steward, in my case, me, Uh, has to do is understand the ecosystem. You've got to understand your biome and what it longs to move to and what it, uh, and then be very much in touch and in tune with that. The second thing you've got to do is have a good understanding of exactly what animal, what impacts various species of animals have, And the the outside factors, for instance, if it's raining a lot, the impact that hogs have when it's raining a lot is not the same impact hogs have when it's not raining a lot. The impact that a sow and little pigs have is not the same impact that finishing hogs, 300-pound finishing hogs have. Once you understand the ecosystem and you understand the uh, nuances of animal impact, then the fun part is putting them together and making it work. It's just like, a, in my mind, it's like, a, I don't think I'm very artistic, but sort of like an artist enjoying painting with a, a canvas and, 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 and paints. You know, I enjoy shaping the landscape with different animal species.
0: Sure, there's a lot of different ways to express an artistic or aesthetic way of doing things. And it sounds like this is very much a subjective kind of observation feedback loop that is required. You have to be there and really care about what you're doing to pay close attention and react to the the small changes that can make a big difference in the health of the ecosystem and and react in real time, it sounds like.
1: It's it's art in a very right brain sort of way.
0: Indeed. Now... Let's talk about some of the advantages and challenges of so much direct marketing, especially for such a large volume of products. Uh, some of the farmers that are with us today have large operations as well, many hundreds of hectares, and the idea of direct marketing such a large volume of products seems daunting. Can you talk about how you got into selling most of your goods that way?
1: Yes. Yes. So uh, first, I should say that uh, no, 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 no scale is right. I mean, no, there is no correct scale. It's highly situational. Uh, I have the, uh, the dubious uh, uh, honor of being in the poorest county in the United States of America based on uh, household income, not per capita income, but household income. Land is cheap here as compared to uh, most zip codes in this country, Uh, but we're a long way from the market. I have no local market. So in that, with that set of circumstances, operating at a bigger scale makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a very small plot of land in one of the zip codes, that has got very high disposable income it's a great situation to operate on a very small scale. And there's every shade of gray in between those two. So I am very uh, uh, non-judgmental uh, about about scale. Anything can fit its highest situation. Uh, so the, to tell you what our evolution was, uh, I, when I became dissatisfied with my production model, the industrial production model, Uh, I started changing it and, and liked the changes that I saw. But I raised my cost of production because I internalized a lot of the costs that I had previously externalized. And I quickly understood that I was not going to be able to just dump my product into the commodity market the way I had for the previous 20 years. So I started marketing my product and uh, in in my case, uh, the timing was very, very fortunate. Not very smart, very fortunate. Uh, I sold Whole Foods markets and public supermarket, the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. That was pure, dumb luck timing. But it, was, it, it, it worked, and uh, their appetite was insatiable, and there was no, not many people doing it other than me, a few, but not many. So uh, uh, I built this company as a wholesale grass-fed beef business at, at the inception. Uh, later, I saw the need to add other species because of the animal impact primarily. It also offered, uh, it it, uh, uh, allowed me to have more than one income stream, one product to sell just grass-fed beef. But my primary motivation was the animal impact originally. Uh, We did very well operating this as a wholesale business from I'd say about 2000 to about 2015 or so. Uh, at that time, uh, fairly in you know, a fairly short short period of time, big multinational companies came into my niche market. Uh, it was, it was uh, you could see it coming, and when they did, they uh, uh, really uh, crushed my margins. I was able to keep a big portion of my business, but not at a margin level that. Gave me the comfort that I had previously. Uh, we started uh, moving the business away from wholesale a little bit. We uh, wanted to, so we started an online store, and uh, and uh, uh, did our own order fulfillment. Uh, I also built a store, a store refurbished store. Uh, 150 year old store and built a restaurant here on the farm and some other things, but they were very incidental in terms of volume. But my hope for salvation was the online business. Uh, We had gotten that business, uh, it it grew very slowly. And by uh, 2020, we've gotten it up to about $3 million a year. Uh, which was a, a fairly small percentage of the total. Uh, during the, the, the pandemic hit and during the panic of the pandemic, the three million dollar annualized volume went to something astronomical. I don't know what it would have been. We, we sold out of everything, but it was incredible. That lasted about three months, and the panic went away. And it, the, the what it came back when it normalized. It normalized at about six million. So it's twice as much as it was previously, which is great, but still not as much as I had hoped. You know, I would love for the, uh, the state of the stratosphere. <clears throat> uh, but it did, it did make us aware of how good that could be. So now I still uh, have my wholesale grocery business. Uh, I cherish it but the the money we're spending is to uh for the online direct to consumer not necessarily yeah the direct to consumer business let's just call it that
0: yeah it's been fantastic just fascinating to observe all the different fluctuations and things that people have been experiencing as a result of the pandemic and it seems like a lot of these businesses that are selling high quality, nutritionally dense, uh, you know, responsibly produced food have seen a huge boost to their sales as people realize that this is what you want to rely on when, when everything else is kind of falling apart. That must have been a real uh, you know, sort of confirmation. Of the quality of what you're putting out and the value that the people are finding from your products. And not only that, but the value that you're adding to the community around you as well. How did that make you feel from not just a, a financial perspective, but kind of a validation of the rest of the impacts that your business is having?
1: The answer to be with that is yes. But uh, make no mistake, our business is only marginally profitable, it's a, it's a big business. But the margins are very thin, Uh, the the, uh, capital outlay is great, and it's a very marginal business. And and I'm I'm okay with that, as long as nothing bad happens. But in business, something bad is going to happen. I just don't know what day. So it's important to us that we we move this business model into something that is is more profitable. uh, an Ivy League MBA would scoff at the amount of risk we take on here for the return. You know, no one would, no one would be in that business uh, if it were uh, if, return, if return on investment was was uh, high and important.
0: Well, so obviously you've prioritized other things than just making money, but given that we started this conversation talking about the need for resilience in a farm business, why have you and what have you prioritized other than just the profitability of the enterprise?
1: Uh, I'm, uh, resiliency and more specifically, we love closing loops. Uh, we've got some loops that are not closed. We, uh, uh, I, I don't have a hatchery. I buy uh, chicks and keats and ducklings and goslings and pullets from hatcheries, and that's a that's a that's not closed. Uh, I don't have a feed mill to make my grain diet <clears throat> from my monogastrics. I buy it from uh, a non-GMO feed mill here in the state. <clears throat> uh, We've been able to close a lot of loops. I buy no fertilizer. I make my, we generate about nine tons of packing plant waste a day, five days a week. And we have a huge composting operation and I'm in terms of uh, uh, nutrients, I'm self-sufficient. Uh, you know, I, we love, love closing loops, and the more I can, I, I like to think I live on an island. I don't, I like to think of it as an island, and I try to be independent from the rest of the world as much as I can.
0: Well, let's talk about closing these other parts of the loops of the enterprises and the decision to do a lot of the uh, post-production of the raw products, especially the meats by having butcheries and processing facilities on the farm. Now, I know that's not an easy undertaking. and There's a lot of red tape and regulations that you have to uh, accommodate and red tape to, uh, to jump over in order to make something like that viable. Can you describe the process and the decisions that were made uh, in setting that up?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> that, that, that's probably the most extreme example of closing loops that we have, have done, <clears throat> and I, I didn't want to do it. Uh, Few people want to own a slaughterhouse. You know, it's it's not pleasant work. It's uh, it's very capital intensive. It's a fresh product. It's highly regulated. I can go on and on about all the reasons you don't want to do that. It's a life-changing experience and not necessarily for the better. And uh, and it's not a part part of the business I enjoy. Uh, I, I, I don't loathe it. But it's not something I wake up wanting to do. I am very, uh, very blessed that I have uh, uh, a young man that manages it quite autonomously That that's very good at it. Uh, so that figure, uh, that I, I, I don't, uh, and he, he runs it very autonomously. I mean, I help him, but he, he, he's managing that part of the business. Uh, and uh, well, I'll finish the first question. Now, i need, I probably need to tell you a little bit about the management structure at some point. Uh, <clears throat> when I first decided to that I could not make, I, I could not farm the way I wanted to selling into the commodity market, uh, I found slaughter uh, from outside abattoirs, slaughterhouses. I was able to buy the excess capacity of these little slaughterhouses around. And of course I had to find somewhere to go with the beef. And uh, I was more more successful finding a home for the beef than I was finding the processing capacity. I told you that was during a time when the wholesale grocers were hungry for American grass fed beef. So that part at that time was not difficult, but the little slaughterhouses I was using sold me all their excess capacity before I was doing enough volume to be profitable. And we went through a a weekly dance. Uh, I called and say, I need to bring 12 head this week. And they say, you can bring four. And I I said, I I need to, I have 12 that are ready and I have a market for 12, I need to bring 12. We wound up with six and and I was, I saw promise in the business, but I was not, I was not able to do the volume to be profitable. So I had to make the decision to either go back to uh, raising cattle very industrially, or uh, find the funding and build the slaughter capacity, and that's what I chose to do. And I would hasten to say that if I were doing it today, I don't know if I would have been successful or not. Uh, had there not been that insatiable demand for grass-fed beef at that time, I I might not have made it. Today, uh, we have to sell the product. Um, At that time, I was filling demand. So uh, it's a different set of economics. You know what? Tomorrow will be another different set of economics.
0: Now, we're getting towards the part where I'd like to hand this over to our farmers to ask questions, but just so that we don't forget this question, because I know (laughs) we're going to want to get around to it. What advice would you give to either new farmers or experienced farmers who are considering transitioning towards regenerative management practices?
1: I got to answer it two ways. Uh, One is, uh, it's not just about embracing and mastering regenerative land management. That's certainly essential. It's, it's certainly part of it. But to be resilient, you can be regenerative just by knowing how to restart the cycles of nature. And you can read Gabe Brown's book and one or two other dirt the soil and one or two others and spend a little time on the farm that 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 that's not rocket right science. It's beautiful, but it's not rocket right science. If you go home and do that, and you don't do anything else, you go broke. Uh, You have got to find a way to, after you produce it, to get it processed. And that's true of beef, it's also true of carrots, it's true of, you've got to find a way to get it made marketable. Consumers don't buy cows and hogs and sheep, they buy beef and pork and lamb. So, and they're not gonna buy it, so much kale. You've got to find a way to make it uh, monetizable. Uh, so processing production, then processing, and then actual marketing it, you know, build it and they will come Is not nearly uh, what you might hope it would be. You've got to find a way to, you've got to find a customer that wants it. And getting the two them is not easy. You know, people, uh, Consumers don't consume where farmers farm. Farmers don't do a lot of farming where consumers consume. So that's all part of it. Also, in the industrial commoditized centralized model, uh, Big Ag has made it easy for farmers. It's easy for farmers. You can raise cattle or soybeans or whatever your commodity is and pick up the phone and say, I have six semi-loads of blank and they'll come and get it and sends you a check. Uh, that's not the way this works. Uh, the the convenience that Big Ag has offered has come at a great price in terms of margin, but make no mistake, they take a lot of the angst out of the business and you, you, you will bring that angst back into your life. When you, when you, embrace a resilient uh, farming model. A big thanks
0: to Will for sharing his knowledge and experience with our group of Pioneer Farmers. Now, you can find out more about Will and the whole team at White Oak Pastures by following the links in the show notes for this episode at regenerativeskills.com. And if you're interested in learning more about upcoming Pioneer programs through Climate Farmers, be sure to check out our website at climatefarmers.org where you can sign up to our newsletter for the latest updates to our upcoming programs and access our growing library of agricultural resources for farmers in Europe. You can also check out our YouTube channel where we post the video versions of our latest expert panel discussions with many of the leading voices in region ag from around the world. Special thanks to Zachariah Hickman for this week's original music that does it for this week's episode until next time keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and i'll be right by your side along the way